Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. Olivia Wannan is one of just a handful of New Zealand journalists to attend COP26 in Glasgow. She's rubbing shoulders with the rich and powerful to watch as the world's climate policy is argued and hopefully agreed to. Olivia is a climate reporter for Stuff.co.nz and she joins me on day, I think it's the close of day five or is it day four, Olivia? Uh, it's day five technically, though um, only there's been four real days of action. Yeah. Now, Glasgow is not a big town. I've been there. It's a lovely town, uh, but it's not big. This event must have completely dominated the city. Um, I think everyone's probably aware that it's on. Um, you know, there'll be a lot of people walking around. Um, there are a lot of signs up. But where I'm staying, for example, you know, I think life's going on as per normal. Um, yeah, so uh, it really depends where you are. But in yeah. the actual venue itself, it's inescapable. <laughs> How many people attend the conference in person? Um, I believe that there are 40,000 of us. Um, I suspect the British government were not expecting that many people to attend. Um, there are just, for example, like really long queues to get in in the morning, um, and I suspect that's because they probably thought maybe fifteen to 20,000 people would come. Um, and then, of course, then there are the non-attendees, the protesters and, and the like. What's it like entering the venue? Do you have to run a gauntlet of protesters? Strangely enough, they, they obviously seem to come in after I arrive for the morning. Perhaps perhaps they have a sleep in. Um, but, yeah, no, I've, I've, I've heard them and, and come across them but never been disturbed or interrupted by them. Right. And when you go into the venue, are you kind of hanging out with the big noters, you know, if you sat next to Joe Biden or such? The Alas, no. <laughs> um, so because of the social distancing this time around, there's a kind of select media pack from the really big um, name organisations, and they're the ones who are in the room with the famous people. Um, the rest of us, um, there's kind of there, there is a kind of allocation system. So if you're a lottery, so if you're lucky, you can possibly pick up a pass. Um, but the rest of us are kind of trying to grab them on the way in and out um, of the rooms um, if you can get them. Um, yeah. you know, some some great. Um, you know, the lobbyists are there too, trying to obviously push their own message. So it is a bit of a scramble. Yeah, I saw the most amazing doorstop of Malcolm Turnbull as he was entering one of the rooms by uh, an Australian journalist and he absolutely eviscerated Scott Morrison. Uh, there must be great opportunities for grabbing people as they walk past. There are if you, I mean, sometimes it really depends on luck. Um, because everyone will go as soon as we spot. Um, and, but you know, there's a you know there's a huge range of engaging, you know, with people. Um, and of course, the New Zealand uh, ministers, um, prime minister, um, wasn't there, so um, we'll be awaiting to ask our ministers the really tough questions when James mm. Short arrives next week. Mm. Tell me about the New Zealand contingent. Are, are there many Kiwis there? 
Um, so there are obviously the uh, negotiating team. Um, so they are a smaller group, I believe, than have ever been before. I think that was uh, to minimise the number of people who had to travel, but also to minimise how many MIQ spots uh, they'll need when they get back. Mm. Um, so I certainly don't envy the people who are kind of shoulder tapped from the London Embassy to kind of come in and join all this, possibly at the last minute, because it's an incredibly complicated bit of um you know law and policy that you have to wrap your head around um so even reporting on it is tough let alone trying to be a negotiator so i really think we've got to give props to those people <laughs> you described the mood as quite gloomy in those first couple of days was that just because it was raining in a, a typical kind of scottish uh, autumn day or or was what was it a policy thing um it was a little bit of the weather um but also i think the mood of the conference um i got there on the sunday which was the official opening day it was before all the leaders arrived um and it was quite rainy and cold um but it also felt like the leaders of the conference, um, you know, it just felt like they, you know, they were the, it was opening night and they were giving a speech just before the, you know, the show. And instead of talking up about how amazing it was going to be, they were kind of talking it down and downplaying expectations like, you know, it's okay if someone flubs a few lines or, you know, it doesn't matter. Maybe it'll be better next time. And so it, it just felt like they were, already, you know, undermining their own conference, um, which I just found really odd. Is that because there is so much expectation and they want to manage those expectations? You know, we've been here before with COP um, where the uh, the hopes and dreams are so high only to be disappointed. Well, I mean, I think in some ways they were responsible for some of the hype um, you know, for example, Alok Sharma said he wanted to be uh, the president at the COP who consigned coal to history. And, I mean, that is a huge accomplishment. Um, and he said it only two months before that. So he possibly on that front only has himself to blame. I mean, in a way, I think it's good to go in with really high expectations, but, you know, t it's if you're undermining it <laughs> and kind of carving out expectations as well, it just seems, yeah, like, mm. <laughs> like we're seeing two sides of. Um, How yeah. much work gets done before this conference? Is this what you see a uh, an example of what, uh, a sort of manifestation of what has already been negotiated or are there new things actually agreed to at the conference? I think there is a lot of work that's done beforehand. Um, a lot, I'd say a lot of those pledges were negotiated and, and they're kind of dripping out day by day. A lot of those pledges probably, you know, the hard yards with the really big players, for example, getting Brazil on board with the deforestation pledge, you know, probably would have been done before um, mm. because you're not going to announce one unless you've got like a half-decent headline. Um and, and, for example, I think there's been movement on some of the really hard uh, negotiating issues, um, for example, how we'll design a carbon market to allow New Zealand to buy credits. Um, some of that stuff, I think, has been done by the various ambassadors um, around the world. 
Um, but I still think that there is a lot of work to do here and that, you know, there are just some things you can't do unless you've got everybody in a room together. Hmm. Um, yeah. Now, you have pointed to some highlights, and uh, one of them is India committing to halving emissions by 2070, which seems a long way away. But what is the silver lining in that announcement, Olivia? Um, well, I, as I understand it, and I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing the experts here, is that um, India were always expected to to have their emissions continue to rise um, through the end of this decade and possibly even in 2040. Um, so if they actually set a net zero target, say today, and make you know efforts to get there, um, that could see their emissions actually peak, say, before 2030 and start heading down. And that, if you can imagine those kind of two curves, that saves an incredible amount of carbon. The sooner that curve breaks, you know, there are just mm. billions mm. of tons of carbon saved. Um, so that is why it is really so exciting for them to set it. Um, and I think the other thing is, is that most people see India as always kind of under committing. Um, so if they're saying 2070, it's probably going to be sooner. Um, so that's great. Mm. The deforestation commitment seemed uh, amazing given the uh, I suppose the level of abuse that this current uh, government, Brazilian government, is uh, waging on the Amazon. Uh, how credible is that commitment? Maybe tell us first about the actual commitment and and then maybe reflect on how credible is it? Yeah, well, this still seems to be a bit of a developing story. Um, so basically the headline uh, was that a bunch of countries, including Brazil and Indonesia and Russia, um, had pledged to end deforestation by 2030 um, and to promote sustainable land use. And those countries were incredibly important because they hold either incredibly important tropical rainforests, which is uh, Indonesia and Brazil, um, or just huge amounts of uh, forests, which is Russia. Um, so basically, I believe the there was a trade-off. There was um, some money from developed countries on the table, um, and that would go to to kind of offsetting, you know, the um, loss that they would take by not developing this land and keeping it as forest. Hmm. Um, but um, I believe in the last couple of hours, one of the Indonesian the Indonesian Environment Minister, um, whose name I've forgotten, um, has actually come forth and said that they think that the deforestation pledge is unfair, uh, which makes it sound like they're not actually prepared to be in there. So I think it's uh, a bit touch and go, and the experts who were wary of it um, had some right to be, but hmm. that's how it goes. Is that an example of the kind of headline that sounds like uh, it's been negotiated beforehand, but ac actually that's why they need to be there to thrash out these commitments so there's no walking back. Yeah, and I, I think uh, you could also accuse these organisers of putting a lot of commitments in place that sound really good and, and could be really good if, if all parties are prepared to do it but don't have a lot of sticks, um, you know. For example, the methane pledge, uh, New Zealand uh, signed up, um, you know, we're going to be part of global efforts to limit uh, methane to uh, mm. 
to less than 30%, to cut it by 30%. Um, but we're only going to, we're only aiming to cut it by 12%. And arguably, we don't have any real policy um, to even prove that we're going to get that, um, you know, but yet we've been allowed to join that pledge and take the credit for it and get the headlines. Um, and I think there have been a few of those kind of pledges done. So, yeah. What happens with that commitment? Uh, we are included in it and we get the glory for it. And and what happens when James Shaw comes home and has to talk to uh, the farming community, to uh, the dairy industry, uh, how does it happen? Well, so, so the interesting thing about the methane pledge is that it's an overall commitment from all parties involved. Um, so, for example, I think the idea is, is that the uh, US and Canada will do a lot of the heavy lifting on the methane because they've got huge amounts of leaks um, and plugging them just makes economic sense. Like it's a, just a win-win for everybody. Um, and this so is leaks. These are, sorry, Livy, these are leaks in the natural gas mm-hmm. system. Yeah, so so they can yeah, so they've got huge amounts of natural gas and and sorry, this is leaking out. And of course, natural gas is methane. Um, they've got a lot of leaks. They're planning to plug them. Um, I believe um, Trudeau said he thought he could plug. He could capture seventy five percent of all the methane that leaks. So they've got a huge amount. So that will kind of balance out countries like New Zealand that are only prepared to cut methane by about 12%. So we have not pledged to do any more than we were going to in order to join this methane pact. Uh, so you could fairly accuse it of just being hot air because it's just <laughs> business as usual for us. So, yeah, smelly hot air. Now, just to stay on the positive, you did highlight also this commitment to funding developing nations to mitigate their uh, transition. Uh, tell us more about that funding commitment. It's quite a sizable amount. Um, yeah, so, so I believe um, the, the latest figure I heard, I think there was, Alok Sharma said 18 billion US dollars, I think has been pledged to help countries transition from coal into green energy, um, which is, a, yeah, a huge amount of money. Um, so I'm not I, – um, there have been huge amounts of, of um, money commitments um, thrown around. Um, but then there's also the $100 billion uh, developing country pledge, which is, sorry, I think what you were, what you were yes. talking about. Um, so, yeah, so the $100 billion pledge uh, is something that was promised, I think, first in 2009, uh, reiterated at Paris. Basically, it was the trade-off that rich developed countries would give to help um, developing countries in, in order to – it was the trade-off so that they would also start cutting their carbon. Um, that money uh, was due to have arrived. Um, a hundred billion US dollars each year was due to have arrived in 2020. Uh, it did not show up, um, and basically the race has been on to get to there as soon mm-hmm. as possible. Um, so the other day, I think the uh, second day of the leaders' summit, um, it turned out that the Japanese Prime Minister um, upped his pledge. Uh, he was going to put forward $60 billion 
over five years and up that to 70 billion. I think they're still working out the details, but that will get the uh, total to, I think, 100 billion per year in 2022. So really we're at, within spitting distance of that. So you hope that potentially, you know, with a few calls here and there, perhaps by the end of the conference, we might get that this year, that there's not hmm. that much of this year left. Who administers that money and what, where does it go? Um, so I believe that the individual countries have some say over that. I don't believe there's a central body. Um, and there's also, um, there's, you know, it can count, I think it can count loans, it can count uh, grants, um, and basically different people count different things. Um, so everyone's calculation can sometimes come across a little bit different than the others. Um, so that would only be one estimate, and obviously the, the climate conference people are probably going to want to take the most favourable estimate of that cash. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what's coming up? There's still a week to go uh, at the event and presumably there are more announcements hoped for. What's on the agenda? Um, so right now I think the most work that's going on, now the leaders have, have left, um, is the actual negotiation of what we would call the Paris Agreement rulebook. Um, so the Paris Agreement is a very high-level agreement. It was a, it was a landmark agreement. Uh, um, accord, but the actual everyday workings of how it would happen, uh, they left that for the next five cops to decide. Um, and we really haven't got around to actually getting that. A lot of those parts um, are done, but there are a few just niggly little issues where we just can't find agreement. Uh, so the ne negotiators, uh, the ambassadors are in rooms together trying to niggle all those details out. Um, basically, I think what they do at this stage is find all the alternatives so that everybody in the room, you know, has their favoured uh, version in there, and then they try to chip away at them one by mm. one. Um, is that the time when the uh, NDCs, the nationally determined commitments, uh, get negotiated, or have they already been announced? Um, so, so, so it, it could be that another NDC gets announced. It probably would have happened when the leader was in the room, so it's unlikely that any major ones would happen. But it could be that one of the negotiating strategies would be to get, say, you know, one of the outstanding countries like Australia, like perhaps that would be how they got something across the line would be to agree to a tougher NDC, but it's possibly unlikely. I've spoken to a few people about it and they said there might be some small ones, but don't expect anything major. Hmm. Does the absence of China and Russia uh, make, what's the impact of that? on this COP. Has there been disappointment about that? I believe so amongst the big leaders, especially because if the leader isn't there, it's very unlikely that there would be any major commitment because you would want to take that glory naturally as the leader. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I still think, I mean, I still hear good things about the relationship between the Chinese negotiating team. They are here at least. Um, and the working relationship with, say, some of the big delegates like the US, um, you know, so it's possible that, you know, 
the, the negotiations are still going to continue. And to be fair, I, I believe when it comes to China, he doesn't really follow the Western timetable set that, that the major announcements come out of COP anyway. Um, so, mm. you know, whether he was here or not, it, they still possibly wouldn't happen. What's your feeling overall, Olivia, about this COP? Is it the uh, turn, turning moment in history as Paris was, uh, or um, has it not lived up to that expectation? Uh, I'm, I think it's kind of poised on a knife at the moment. Um, so one of the things I we saw today and we've been seeing for the last couple of days is that people have been crunching some of the numbers on the pledges that have been made, um, particularly on India's net zero by 2070 and some of the deforestation pledges. There was more news today about Indonesia ditching coal, things like that. Um, so there are various organisations that kind of crunch all that and put it into the model and try to work out what path that would put the world onto warming. And a couple of people have come out now and said, actually, this gets us, if all these pledges are met, a big if, but the, those put us on a path to under two degrees Celsius, which is, I think, the first time we've ever had a shot at that. So that is, you know, really, really exciting. I mean, most, you know, most of us probably don't want to live in a two degree Celsius world, but this was always about ramping up ambition. So if we're hitting under two degrees now um, or we're hitting 1.8 degrees, which is what the International Energy Agency said, then maybe from here on out, you know, next COP we could we could hit 1.5. Yeah. Does the, uh, the conference continues, but... I don't think you will stay all week at the conference. This is uh, this is you bowing out at this point. Um, no, I'm I'm going to stay um, for all two weeks. Um, so I'm I'll, I'll be kind of digging into some of the kind of juicier issues at this point, um, which is the the kind of Paris rulebook things. And then obviously, yeah, we'll we'll stick around and see what happens. And if we do get a finalisation. Um, because that is a big thing. If we can get the Paris Rule Book finalised, then, you know, countries can start to meet their, you know, go forward and um, start providing the reports on how their emissions are tracking. And we can start trading carbon, which is incredibly important for New Zealand because we're going to buy a lot of carbon credits to meet our particular NDC. Yeah. Um, so that's incredibly pivotal, especially for New Zealand. That yeah, point. yeah. Fantastic. And I understand that uh, Scotland is home for you, or at least an ancestral home. Um, yeah, apparently. So I think I was told that uh, one <laughs> of my surname um, came from uh, Scotland. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it's my first time here. So um, I'll have to, when I get a free moment, <laughs> I'll have to look up the phone book and see if I can find anyone with a similar name. Find some distant relatives. Um, Olivia, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. All, all the best for the remaining week and thanks for your mahi. Awesome. Thank you for your time. This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand.